and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you on with us. Today, we are chatting with Bob Bordeaux. Bob is someone who I recently had the pleasure to meet. Uh, We were on a trip together, and Bob is, first and foremost, a genuinely authentic and curious guy. He is a teacher. Uh, he is actually the founding director of the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program. So he is a professor at arguably the most prestigious university in our country. Uh, he teaches a lot of courses at Harvard Law School, uh, including uh, teaching negotiation. So we're going to get into the weeds and really find out how he teaches negotiation. And it's really cool because you will actually hear us go back and forth on how there are so many similarities between how he teaches preparation and also performance in a negotiation and how that is similar to a lot of what my athletes and a lot of the clients that I work with and what they do to set their mind to perform, especially in intense environments where the stakes are high and there are outcomes and rewards and uh, consequences. So negotiation is something that I have often talked about with my clients, but Bob really crystallizes it, teaches us the art of the negotiation, and he will teach you a lot of the fundamentals that he uses with his students. Bob is also going to share his story. So he's going to share his upbringing and how he ended up becoming a professor at Harvard and his journey to that. He he has had stints in politics. He had thought about journalism. He'll share a lot of his journey, and I think it's it's relevant because I don't think he had this plan or this master plan set out for himself when he first started down this path, and he just tried to do good work, work really hard, and he's someone that valued education from a young age and has seen education really pay off for him throughout his career. He is also somebody who is extremely humble. I don't think uh, if you met Bob for the first time, and certainly when I met him for the first time, you would have realized that he has this prestigious position at Harvard and that he is really one of the leaders in the world when it comes to negotiation. So he's a humble guy, but make no mistake, he knows his stuff and has really given a lot of thought to how other fields like psychology and sociology impact a negotiation. 
So he is certainly an expert at craft. He's extremely intentional with how he lives his life and the things that he's doing both daily, weekly, monthly to get better and improve. And he's really intentional when it comes to teaching negotiation, but also he believes that negotiation should be an intentional act, that you should be very clear on what the goals are and what you're trying to accomplish, but also understand the perspective and have empathy for the person across the room. So you're going to love this talk with Bob. Uh, I, I certainly loved it. When we started it, we weren't really sure where it was going to go, and uh, it went in all kinds of different directions, and I think they were all uh, really beautiful, and I really enjoyed chatting with Bob. So since I know you're going to like this conversation, I'm going to ask a request from you. We need you to go over to iTunes and, and like the podcast. So go over there and just write a short review, a, a sentence, a paragraph, whatever you can, to just talk about the podcast and, and what you like about it. We also need you to share it. So people are doing a great job. Uh, sharing it on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you are social, go ahead and share. We need you to. Uh, this has taken a lot of my time and it, it's a labor of love. I'm really enjoying it. It's really a passion of mine to get into the weeds with people, find out their story and how they set their mind intentionally. And I need your help. So I need you to go on and, and continue to share it. Those of you that are already doing that, I appreciate it and continue to do so because we need to continue to build this out so that we can serve you, uh, the listener. But without further ado, I'd love to present to you, Bob Bordeaux. Bob, so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the last month or so. Uh, a lot of deep, meaningful conversations. So I know this will not disappoint. And the difference here is now we just are sharing our conversations with the world. And um, I want to start, uh, just give me a sense of your background, where you grew up, uh, what family was like for you as a child. Um, if you could take me back, then we'll go forward and, and maybe that's a good place to start. Terrific. Well, Brian, thanks for inviting me to do this. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to continue and build on our conversations in Israel. So, um, gosh, your question, what was childhood like? Well, I'm an only child. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of attention focused on me pretty much all the time. So I was growing, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, about 15 miles outside of Manhattan um, and yeah, I grew up in a, a wonderful family. I mean, parents who, I mean, if the gosh, if there's any fault, it was, um, too much focus on me sometimes. Uh, but, um, grew up in a very Catholic family, um, Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade. And, um, that I think has had and still has a big influence on my life. Um, and, also, though, with parents who, um, you know, really didn't have much in the way of formal education. My mom never went to college. My dad went to night school in Jersey City over six years to earn his bachelor's. Um, my dad worked um, for the utility company for his whole career. Um, and my mom stayed at home. Um, and so my mom was somebody who kind of made sure I tried out everything. Um, from little league to soccer to basketball to reading groups to Cub Scouts. Any idea um, why? Why did she want you to experience all those things? Yeah, I think um, I think for them, they were hoping and wanting me to, you know, find things that I would be interested in. Um, I think it was also a way to ensure that I made friends because I didn't have the natural advantage of siblings um it's also the case i come from a just a small family um so my dad has one brother 
who doesn't have any kids, and my mom was an only child too. So it wasn't like I had tons of cousins hanging around. Um, so I think that was a way to socialize me and um, um, and expose me to a lot. You know, not all of it was was fun. Um, my mother thought it would be a really good idea for me to learn to play the organ. Um, <laughs> um, so I played the organ for a bunch of years and, you know, didn't like it. And, you know, therefore wasn't good at it. Um, and once a week, the teacher would come and it was pretty evident to the teacher that I had not practiced the whole week. So it was hard to move forward when you're not practicing. And Catholicism, um, how did that help shape who you are? Um, what was that like growing up with that being a, a big part of your upbringing? Yeah. So I think um, I grew up with um, a pretty traditional form of Catholicism. Um, and, um, there are ways in which I think that served me and disserved me in the long run. And then, uh, and I'll say a little more about that. And, uh, and then I think there are also some really kind of progressive aspects of Catholicism that, um, um, over time have, I think served me well as well. So, so around some of the more traditional aspects, I, I actually think the discipline of rules um, the discipline of kind of ritual. I'm somebody who really likes ritual. Um, actually helped me succeed in school, helped me be more uh, intentional and purposive. Um, I think, you know, sometimes rules can feel arbitrary. And I think certainly there's a lot of rules in Catholicism that feel arbitrary. But that aspect, I think, um, was really good for me. Um, I also think that there are just some core values around... Um, mercy and wanting to make a positive difference in the world and caring about other people and um, empathy and extending beyond yourself um, that I think are really foundational to um, Catholic teaching um, that I think the popular um, you know parlance sometimes doesn't get as affiliated with Catholicism and I think one of the things that we're kind of seeing right now with Pope Francis, who is really emphasizing those things, um, which to me are really core around, around Catholicism and really, you know, all of the great faith traditions. So um, those values are still values that matter a lot to me, that animate a lot of the work that I do and the work that I want to do, the impact that I want to have. Um, uh, so, yeah. What what values did your parents pass down to you? What were things that they stressed um, when you were a kid? Yeah, so gosh, um, responsibility. Um, you know, doing the right thing, um, honesty, integrity, um, character, hard a work, lot of, a lot of character items there. Yeah, a lot of character items. I think working really hard. I mean, if you, um, my view of myself, which I think is accurate, although you know. You never really know. You have to interview other people for that. <laughs> uh, we won't do a 360 on you. You could do a 360. Yeah, yeah, that's what you need to do. Uh, but I say my view of myself, if I look at a lot of my colleagues through the years, I often think like, gosh, these other people, they have just, they're just smarter. Like they have just more natural brain power in a really, really big way uh, than, than I do. Um, I think for me, part of um, part of what has worked out well for me is just a willingness to work hard. 
So, um, Bob, most people that come on this podcast say that they just work really hard. Yeah. And I always ask them, I said, okay, but there's a lot of other people that work really hard. So give me another unfair advantage or superpower that you think you have that has helped you get to where you are. Yeah. Um, okay. I think the, the two things I wanted to say, one of them, one of them is not a superpower, <laughs> but it's an unfair advantage. Um, and the other one I think is, I want to quite call it a superpower, but it is an attribute. So the one that I'll start with the attribute and the attribute is a willingness to kind of take a risk. Um, so, um, to be on a certain path where there are very, um, safe and predictable outcomes, but to kind of see an opportunity that feels resonant and that feels attractive and feels like it would be good and say like, you know, I'm going to try this out. And so, you know, specifically for me, um, I, you know, I, um, after college went to law school, graduating from, uh, law school in the late nineties. Um, it was a moment when the first internet bubble was starting. Um, you know, it was just super easy to get a million law firm jobs. Um, and if you want to do management consulting, also very easy as well. Um, you know, I had an offer to actually go work at McKinsey and company, um, felt reasonably confident that I would enjoy that or a chance to go and do a one year lectureship at Harvard law school that would end after the year for about a third of the salary. Hmm. Um, now, uh, you know, on one sense, well, what's the risk there? I mean, it's not like you were, um, you know, had some terrible job. On the other hand, it was, I had a huge amount of school loan. Um, and, um, you know, who knew, who knew what was going to happen after that year, but there was just something about that opportunity that felt like I need to try this. Um, and that has turned out really well for me. So you um, decided think, to do the Harvard is what, what I'm getting. I did. Yeah, I did. And, um, and you know, that turned into two years, which turned into a third year, which then turned into a multi-year, which then turned into the chance to be an assistant clinical professor and. Um, and then I had this opportunity to really create this clinic, um, that I kind of made up. Um, but I felt along these, these, there were these kind of decision moments, um, where I think for whatever set of reasons, um, you know, I would maybe describe it as just feeling like this feels like it's worth doing. This feels exciting to me. Um, as opposed to this is the most financially lucrative or the safest, so, I mean, I think, you know, what I often tell students is you want to find something that kind of resonates in your, in your kind of in your heart that feels like, um, yeah, like doesn't feel like work, ideally, right? The risk-taking, I don't know if you've connected yeah. these dots, but one of the first things you led with was my mom put me into everything, you know, Little yeah. League, Boy Scouts, you know, play the organ. Like, do you think that she also embedded in you this notion of like, try it, you may suck, but you're still going to try it. Like that notion of risk taking, is that from sort of mom pushing you in that direction? Or do you, uh, uh, you know, think of it from coming from somewhere else? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I probably would say somewhere else. Like I think she didn't think of that so much as risk taking as, uh, I mean, the credit I would give her is you should be exposed to things broadly. Mm. Um, but if anything, I would say my parents are pretty risk averse, you know? Um, 
I think, um, you know, there's, there's these moments or these conversations that you can have sometimes that just impact you. And there's a particular one, I'm sure, uh, well, if she happens to be listening, I'm sure she would have no memory of this at all. But you may have heard of Jamie Gorelick. Uh, you may not have. There's no I reason why you would have. Okay, so Jamie Gorelick was, <laughs> there's no reason why you would have. Uh, but she was the deputy attorney general. I'm also pretty um, one-dimensional when it comes to not I'm true. pretty like sports dimensional. If you uh, name me the assistant general manager of an NBA basketball team, I probably know. You'll know who it is. Okay. Yeah, so just keep in mind as we're talking that I'm I'm pretty <laughs> I can speak jock. We we won't go into Harvard Law speak and, be, and I'll I'll feel comfortable the rest of the time. But tell me tell me about her a little bit. Okay, I'm gonna tell you about her. And I think the reason why you don't know her is not so much that, but you're younger than I am. Maybe so you you probably you probably wouldn't have been following who the deputy attorney general of the United States was on, in the early years of the Clinton administration. Um, so, or if you did, you would have been a nerd, uh, and you're not a nerd. So now now uh, now you're complimenting me. So I yeah. appreciate. I'm a young, not nerd, one dimensional human. All right, no, no. <laughs> not true. So anyway, Jamie Gorelick, deputy attorney general of the United States. Um, and later on, she was actually one of the people, um, who was on the 9-11 commission. So the independent commission that was set up to investigate what happened. Um, so very well-respected, um, very prominent, um, lawyer and, you know, public servant in Washington. In fact, you know, people thought that she had a very real chance to have been the attorney general in the Obama administration. Um, at all events, um, I um, had an internship with the Justice Department um, when I was in college. Um, I had worked previously for one of my, another life hero of mine, uh, Rita Braver, who's a CBS News correspondent. And um, so I'm at the Justice Department. I'm really, really wanting to meet Jamie Gorelick. Um, and so I contact Rita Braver, who's a CBS News correspondent, who um, had been the chief law correspondent for CBS. And I said to her, you know, can you find a way for me to get into Jamie Gorelick? And she said, well, just like reach out to her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but like, why don't you just do this for me? I mean, I didn't say that to her, but I'm like, yeah, but she might actually respond to you. Yeah. But then I was like, okay, that's a real read a braver thing to do. If you want something, just do it. Um, so great. So, okay. So that was a lesson. So I reach out to Jamie Gorelick and she responds, right? She gives me a half an hour meeting with her. I'm this intern, you know, I kind of walked down the hall and, and I remember what, do you remember what the ask was? Do you, can you, um, cause I think there's a lot of people listening to this that are in a spot like that where they want to get in touch with someone. Um, and, and today we can get in touch with people way more easier than it probably was then. But like, not that old Brian, we had email. This wasn't like over instant messenger. It wasn't like AIM. There was a carrier pigeon. I don't mean email. It was a smoke signal. I don't mean email. I mean LinkedIn. I mean Twitter. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's totally right. Like, I mean, that's that's what I mean when I'm saying it's easier. I look like you can go on a LinkedIn now and connect with someone. I don't know if people realize what's going on on LinkedIn, but you can go on and just connect. You don't have to say anymore like this is how I know the person, right? Yes, and like yes. on Twitter, you can at somebody, you know. So I, that's what I mean. Is like there, yes, like, yes, there yes, are a lot yes. of ways. No, you're totally. But you are right. older. You are. Older. I'm older. Yeah. I'm really older. I am. All right. So go back to your story now that I yeah, to you. yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. No, I sent her a note, and I think I just said, you know, I'm a law student at Harvard. Um, really admired you and 
wondered if I could sit down and learn more about, you know, how you got where you are. Um, and to my great surprise, she set up a half hour. Um, and I remember going in there and the story that she told me, I mean, like I said, Jamie Garalic would not remember me at all. Um, but it turned out that she um, was at a senior position at Arnold and Porter in Washington. So a very prominent DC law firm, one of the best. Um, was within a month of being made partner at Arnold Porter and had an opportunity to go into a relatively junior government job. Um, was called, I think it was at the, um, at the Pentagon. Um, relatively junior, at least given the amount of experience that she had. Uh, but she had to make the decision and immediate. And she just... You know, and all the advice she got was, you have been slaving at this firm. You're a month away from partnership. You take it. You take <laughs> the partnership, right? But she just felt like there was something calling her and something that made her feel like, no, like I really want to do this. And so she left. She went as the government. And that was what started to set her up for the both the experience and the relationships that would form the rest of really, you know, her career since then. And, you know, I'm sitting there as a second year law student listening to this story thinking, what? Um, but it really impacted me, right? Like this idea of if it feels like you really want to do it, like life is short and this is an opportunity and you should do it. Um, and you, you know, and it's going to be okay. Right. And, um, and you know, it was okay for her. And so anyway, it's like, a, it's this little story that, um, maybe because my parents are much more risk averse, right. Um, that just stuck with me. The other part of it is it's, it's, I'm, it, there's some negotiation there. Right. And we're going to get into negotiation, but Short play versus long play, right? Like, yeah. I what it, what makes sense for me right now? And look, someone could argue that she should have taken the partner. That would be the better long play. Um, but she was looking at it as like, no, long play is like, you know, I, I'm going to be – I can go make partner somewhere else or I don't know right. how she thought about it. And for you, like the McKinsey opportunity, like amazing opportunity. But in your mind, it's like, all right, the long play might be for me to go to Harvard and take this opportunity and maybe down the road I can I can go to McKinsey. And I don't know if that's how you thought about it, but to me that's how I hear it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think for me I thought if I say no to this one-year opportunity now, in five years they're not going to come back. This is not the nature of it. Um, the possibility for me to go back to McKinsey or something like that five years down the road just seemed like it was higher. Can you, can you take us back a, a little yeah. more? Because you throw out the H word, uh, the big H, Harvard, and Harvard Law. Um, where did you go undergrad? And and walk us through yeah. Um, yeah, The big D, Dartmouth College. Yeah, so, so another bad, bad education. So yeah. I'm curious, and this is, this is where yeah. I, I, I want to unpack a little more. So mom and dad don't have a big higher education uh, background, but yeah. you – I'm assuming you, you said you work your ass off um, and, you know, are they emphasizing go to college? Are they emphasizing go to the best college you can? Um, and especially you're going to private schools and you said, you said the idea of, you know, Hey, I, I was, you know, took in debt and, you know, there's a lot to that story. So just walk us through the decision. Yeah. And how, yeah. That, how that came to be. 
Yeah, sure thing. So I think, you know, it's interesting. My mom in particular um, definitely stressed education for me. I mean, she's somebody who would check my homework every night. Um, but, um, but in terms of, you know, when college time came, I mean, I think my parents very much hoped that I would go to day school for college. Hmm. Like, that was the hope. Um, not beyond that. And um, I'm a, I was a nerd. I am a nerd, and I was a nerd. So a lot of the college search was very driven by me, um, beginning in my freshman year of high school. I would say to my parents, "Let's go look at colleges for our, you know our family vacation," <laughs> and that's what we would do. We would go and look at colleges. Um, but I have to say, I mean, I also, I mean, I did not have much in the way of like guidance counseling. And, you know, this is a, a real blessing for me because I see so many kids who just live with the uh, kind of expectation. Have to. Of, have yeah, to. got to, right? There's consultants and money and the right schools and blah, blah, blah. And like, I didn't have any of that. In baseball, they actually call them the gattas. I got to get a hit. I got to really? get on base. I got to. Yeah. And when you start saying gotta, you start gripping the bat harder and tighter and it's much harder to be successful. And so yeah. uh, I, I always talk to hat, you know, have to versus get to. Is this something yeah. I get to do or is this something I have to do? Like yes. those, are, those are different things. And uh, so this was something you you wanted to do. Let's go visit colleges. There's excitement around it. There's passion about, I want to go to a great college. Like that's that's there for you at that yes. age. Yes, absolutely. At 15, 15 years old or whatever it is. When you're absolutely. Yeah, and so I was really, I was just fortunate that, I mean, for whatever reason, I had this nerd gene and I didn't have the pressure. Um, I mean, what I didn't have is some of the, kind of professional coaching or support you might get, but your framing around have to versus get to, right? That is huge, right? It's also huge in negotiation. We can come back to that, but that framing makes a really big difference. Um, so, um, gosh, with respect to Dartmouth, I mean, it's kind of a bit of a funny story. Uh, so the high school I went to, they said, you know, it's like a, it was a decently fine school and, um, I had a wonderful time there, but did not send, I mean, hardly anybody ever, to Dartmouth. Um, and, you know, their very best students um, typically went to either Georgetown or Notre Dame, um, kind of the two preeminent Catholic schools in the United States. Uh, but the school had, it turns out that someone from Dartmouth, a Dartmouth student in the area, um, was participating in a program called Take Dartmouth Home, where around the holidays, they would go to some local high schools and talk about their time at Dartmouth. So this kid who did not go to my high school came to my high school to talk about Dartmouth, which I, I had never heard of Dartmouth. Um, and I went home that night and said to my dad, did you ever hear of Dartmouth? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think it's some like little Ivy League school and like little maybe Ivy Massachusetts or New Hampshire. <laughs> and he's like, you don't want to go there. It's like way up in the sticks. You don't want to go there. And I said, well, I said, you know, I'd really like to go visit because I never heard of anyone who talked so glowingly, who was so in love with his school. So can't we just go visit? So we go up and visit like some cold weekend in February. And I liked it well enough, but I wasn't like super in love with it. Um, so fast forward now to applying to schools. Um, I had decided to apply to six schools, um, and the last school I was applying to was Columbia. Um, and I was applying to Columbia. This is another thing that's going to date me. So I'm applying to Columbia. It's like December 29th. But 
and the deadline is January 1st for applications. But we're in the day when you're still doing it on a, uh, I don't know if you remember or heard of these things. They're kind of like word processing machines. It's like a typewriter, but it's not, you're still putting it on a little screen and then you put the paper in and press enter and it prints out, right? Now so you're sounding old, but we'll now I'm sounding you. old. Yeah, now I'm sounding <laughs> old. But the reason why this is relevant is I'm, you know, doing my Columbia application and the paper in the printer slips and three lines go over the same kind of part at the bottom of the application, ruining the Columbia application. And since you're doing this on December 29th and the thing is due January 1st and it's going to be U.S. snail mail, you're just not applying to Columbia. So then I'm like, I don't know. What am I going to do now? And I had a Dartmouth application. And I was like, ah, I may as well do this one instead. That's crazy. <laughs> and so I do this Dartmouth application. My dad comes home that night and he's like, why are you applying there? You're not going to go there. You're just wasting my money and you're not going to go there. And I said, you know what? You're right. I'm probably not going to go there, but college is going to cost $125,000. This is a $50, $50 application. So let's just do it. Anyway, <laughs> I ended up going to Dartmouth. Um, did you end up going to Dartmouth? Did you not get into those other schools? I did not. So I did not. I where really my school I most wanted to go to was Amherst. Mm-hmm. I was deferred at Amherst and devastated. Um, and the second school I was interested in was Princeton, also deferred. Um, I did get into Georgetown and Notre Dame, but my sense of both of them, I mean, obviously really terrific schools. Um, my sense was just they were too similar to my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, just not, yeah, uh, you know, again, great institutions, um, but, you know, very, very kind of, middle-class Catholic schools and Dartmouth just had a, you know, a feel of just having a wider set of people and perspectives. And, um, but I, Dartmouth was like a surprise for me because I didn't, wasn't planning on, I just, and like I said, I wasn't, it was like the bottom of my list. Those schools are all like really bad academic schools. Right. So, uh, of course I'm being facetious, but like, you said you worked hard. You didn't. You know. You never really think of yourself as like the smart person, but at some point, someone's telling you, "Hey, you're applying to these schools. You're pretty bright." Um, was there anyone that looked at you and, and sort of told you, "Hey, you're smart," um, and and sort of told you that you are more than just hardworking? Uh, for sure, um, I never gave them a lot of. Uh, uh, I never gave that a huge amount of weight. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I actually think more people would think they think of me as their story about me is different than my story about me. Let's sure. just say that. Right. Uh, my story about me is, yeah, look at like when I look around at a bunch of people, I think like that person just gets it. I'm sitting at home slaving over it mm-hmm. um, and I'm doing well. Right. But I'm like working hard at it. There was no laziness that got you to where you are. You had to, you had to study. You had to learn it. You had to pay attention in class. You had to put the work in. Whereas someone else might cruise through it because they're just gifted and they just pick up on things really quickly. Yeah, I mean, I've always been drawn to those kinds of people too, right? The, the lazy kinda, ones. Not well, yeah, <laughs> the lazy people. Well, the reason, but I'm, not only the lazy people, the people who seem like they're pretty like, oh yeah, the exam's coming up. Yeah, let's go to the party, yeah. right? Um, you know, I have a really good friend who I met, um, in law school 
who, I mean, you would never know this person was in law school. They were like partying and you would never know um, that they were doing well in law school. And you were at Harvard Law. Is that what you're afterwards? Yeah. 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 And this is somebody who also just kind of came across, I mean, if you met this, this person just as, um, yeah, like a not that substantive, to be honest. Yeah. Right. But as you got to know him, you're like, oh, like he's reading these three books and also teaching himself guitar, right? <laughs> or, you know, um, we ended up doing some work, negotiation work together. And one time we were in Paris and we'd go into the Musée d'Orsay and he's like, yeah, I really want to look at this Delacroix painting. It's my favorite painting and it's in this part. Of the-. I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, <laughs> the interesting thing. So, I reason I use the word lazy is, is pretty yeah. intentional. So, yeah. um, I walked into a basketball high school basketball gym once, and there's a kid there, and the kid is, you know, not a star on the team. He's he's hardly playing, but he's actually like pretty talented kid. Uh, yeah. he, could, he could be playing, and he's wearing a shirt by Nike that says "lazy but talented." Hmm. And my first thought is like, gosh, Nike made that shirt. That's pretty different than just do it. Like, yeah, we, that's we've right. gone away from the ethos of Nike. Yeah. My second thought was to ask the kid, like, why are you wearing that shirt? And he was like, oh, well, uh, a buddy of mine had it, and I traded him this shirt for that shirt. And I just thought it was like kind of a cool shirt. And I go to him, I go, so you're, you're not playing as much as you probably could. Coach is going to come in any minute now. What do you think his thought is going to be when he sees you wearing that shirt? He's like, I never really thought about that. <laughs> and I was like, interesting. And so he goes back, he changes. The next day I see him, he's like, hey, Brian, guess what? Like, I, I traded that shirt for a different shirt. I got rid of it. I was like, oh, cool. Uh, and I'm still in touch with him. He's a great kid. He graduated from college. And it hit me in that moment that lazy but talented is cool in high school. Like, I, it was one of those moments where I was like, dude, go back to high school and think about who are the people that you admired. And yeah. when I was in high school, I admired the kid that didn't have to study at all and got A's that could do whatever they wanted and be the quarterback of the football team. Like to like in high school doing less and having success is like the ultimate. That's and, true. And I actually wrote an article about it. I said, you know, in high school, it's cool in college. Even you can get away with it. Um, but the real world fires lazy, but talented. Yeah. Like at some point, it it comes back and it just bites you in the ass. And it doesn't mean that you have to grind all the time. Um, but like that idea of lazy but talented has just stuck with me. And it's a good reminder that because we often forget about the generation below us and who they are. And we try to generalize and label them. But we forget that we all wanted, not all, I forget that I wanted to be lazy but talented. And that was yeah. something like I aspired to be when I was 16. Like that was yeah. the goal. That was yeah, it. Yeah, right. So right. anyway, it just that that story uh, resonates with me. Law. When was the interest in law? Was that something you thought about when you were younger, college? When did the law come into? Yeah, you great law? question. Uh, you know, for me, I would say my interests were always much more in politics mm. um, than law. Um, I think law. You know, I'm probably like, uh oh, you still there? Yeah, I okay. can hear you, but not see you. Okay. Yeah, you just disappeared. Um, can you see me now? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I think for me, uh, law, I'm a little bit of one of these law by default people. Um, that is to say I had a notion of what I thought the law would be and what I thought law school would be. 
and didn't investigate it maybe as much as I should. Now, it turned out well for me, uh, but I think I could have imagined um, being a PhD in history. I could have imagined doing clinical psychology. Um, I think um, a lot of what I do is around organizational behavior, um, which is something I'm really interested in. Uh, but I think, you know, um, at some point in college, law school started to feel like, oh, this is what a lot of people are doing. Um, it might prepare me for a whole bunch of different careers. And I decided to apply in my senior year, um, not so sure that I would necessarily go at all, and certainly not so sure I would go immediately. Um, and then I ended up feeling, you know, when I, when I did get in, um, a fair amount of pressure, like, oh, I should go right away. What was the draw about um, politics? Because you mentioned that you said I was really like interested in politics. Any idea where that came from? Yeah. And it sounds like you also went on the hill and interned. And yeah, you know, wh what yeah. was the draw about? What was what was the interest in politics? Yeah, Coming I from think someone who grew up outside Washington D.C., where people are always like, "Oh, you're Washington D.C. You're in politics." I'm like, "Oh, well, a lot of us are pretty separated from the hill, and unless you're in it, like you're kind of just separated." And it's uh. You know, pretty incestual inside the hill, as you know. Um, right. So, so it's just anyway. That's a that's a curious curiosity that I have yeah. from your perspective. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and they've always been. I mean, maybe I should say I've really always been interested in journalism. Hmm. Um, and a big piece of journalism, obviously, is political coverage. Although it's also international coverage. Um, I think politics for me part of um, part of what's still exciting about it. Although these days it could also be very depressing. Uh, but it's, it's about relationships, right? It's kind of high drama. Um, it can impact huge numbers of people, right? So it's incredibly consequential, um, and, um, you know, kind of filled with emotion and narrative and story and all of that, um, just was uh, like attractive to me and still is attractive to me. I think the pieces that are less attractive, right, is when it becomes, just about kind of um, just about personality, which is different from policy and relationships and kind of making a difference. Uh, but that, it always that, had a hold on me. That piece is so interesting to me. So I've had a couple people on this podcast um, that have talked about one was um, a general manager of a professional basketball team. The other is an agent, like a big time agent. And both of them, we talked about substance versus like personality, like judge something based on the substance, like not necessarily on the personality. The agent would talk about, Hey, you know, judge me based on my competence on, did I do a good job? Not on, you know, what you think about me, ego or personality. And then the GM was saying how they often, uh, will miss out on the substance basically because of the shiny things. Right. Like, yeah. um, so I, can you unpack that a little more for me? Like what the draw for you is uh, and how you think about personality versus substance? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think unfortunately, right, we've seen in politics uh, and, and journalism even more so a move away from substance and toward entirely personality, right? So substance to me, I mean, obviously it's context specific, right? But it is, let's get into the details of, a policy, right? I want to know what are the implications of this policy? Why 
why this approach and not that approach? Um, what is the long-term impact of that? Um, that requires nuance. That requires a kind of thoughtfulness, right? Um, you have to have more than 10 seconds. Personality to me is, are you charismatic? Are you likable? Are you attractive? Um, can you hold a room? Um, obviously the most success, I mean, I, I would argue that the most successful people over time in, in any field, right. Um, can combine those two things, right. Can combine a sense, but certainly in some fields it's more important than others. Right. I mean, you know, arguably right in sports, you don't need a huge amount. You have to be really good. You don't need a huge amount of personality. Um, uh, and I think there's other domains where that's probably true. Although having a bit of personality can help with the media aspects, right? And, and, and the locker and can, room and the coaches. Yeah. yeah. Like I've had coaches say, Hey, we need more personality, right? Like that's something I hear from coaches. There's a quick story I'll share of yeah. mine that is relevant. That I don't think I shared it with you when we spent time together. So if I did, well, I haven't shared oh, here it on the podcast. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when Bill Clinton was in office with Al Gore as his, as his vice, yeah. Um, the Washington Capitals were in the Stanley Cup Finals. And my dad knew the owner of the Washington Capitals. So we were at the game, and in between periods, we got invited into the owner's suite, the owner's box, to go meet Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Yeah. And so we walk in, and we're wearing a Washington Capitals jersey. And Al Gore is standing in a corner, not really talking to anybody. Yeah. So my dad takes me and my two brothers, we're three boys, we walk over to Al Gore, and he says, Hey Al, uh, I was wondering if you can like give my kids an autograph. Like, you know, they'd love to meet you. He shakes our hands. He says, "Yeah, do you guys have a pen?" And we're like, "No, we don't have a pen." So he looks over and there's a little bar there and there's a little like, you know, normal pen. And mm-hmm. so he just takes that pen, he signs it, and he's like, "All right, nice to meet you guys. Like, enjoy the game." At the same time, the owner sees us, grabs us, and brings us over to Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. We walk over to Bill and Bill goes, Hey boys, how you doing? You're enjoying the game? Like, what a, isn't this awesome? Like caps are in the Stanley cup. How great is that? And he goes, you guys want an autograph? Hey, Jessica, you, you got that Sharpie on you? Bring the Sharpie over. Hey kids. Hey, uh, let me give you an autograph. He signs our Jersey and then goes, Hey Johnny. Hey, Johnny's the photographer guys get together. We'll take a picture and, and give Johnny your address and he'll send you a picture of me with you boys. And guys, it's great to meet you. It's great to be with you. Um, you know, enjoy the, enjoy the rest of the game. Yeah. I, I was like, what just happened? I was young, you know, I was little, yeah. but to this day I have the Jersey and Bill Clinton's autograph is in bold black Sharpie and Al Gore as you can barely see. Yeah. And if there isn't a better analogy for that, I don't know what what is that describes those two people. Like yeah. no one is gonna doubt Al Gore's intelligence or his competence or, um, it you know his ability to maybe serve in that capacity. But he just did not have that other piece that certainly no one would ever doubt that Bill Clinton had the personality and, and in some ways still does to gravitate people. You know, I always, I, and you'll, I'm sure you know about this, like Bill, the way he shakes hands is like, he was famous for cupping with the left hand and like grabbing you with two hands and just, or touching the elbow when he shakes your hand, the warmth of it, the likability, yeah. the personality, that's, that stuff's fascinating to me. Um, can you, can you riff on that a little bit with me as we get into negotiation? And um, I'd love to really pick your brain and, and really find out. So first give us an idea of what you're doing now 
um, with with Harvard Law um, and um, how you got into negotiation and how you got to be a special a specialist with this. Uh, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it and, and have some fun conversation. Sure thing. And I love that story. You did not tell me that story. I didn't tell so you I'm glad that, to yeah. hear it because it's such a great story. <laughs> and, and it really embodies in so many ways. I mean, what I see is the difference between those two people, right? Um, and part of Bill Clinton's just incredible success. Um, but he's also somebody who, right, had both substance and personality, right? And, you know, a bit of a fatal flaw which is really interesting to think about. Um, like, how do you manage your weaknesses? Yeah, and when or we, not. Well, and when we overuse strengths, they become weaknesses. And I think that is something that I see all the time. When we overuse a strength, like the basketball analogy would be, if I'm really good with my right hand, and that's all, I'm just, I'm, I'm so good at getting to the hoop with my right hand. At some point, someone's going to slide over and take a charge on me and force me to my left. And yeah. at some point, I have to go toward the weaknesses. And, you know, we, 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 became friends with a guy named Jeff Gum, who is a Navy SEAL. And he says, part of becoming a SEAL is making sure that you have no weaknesses. Yeah. Um, and you will, they will not let you get through if you have a weakness. And so um, I think for a lot of those people that are popular or are able to do that, sometimes we all overlook some weaknesses or they just overuse the strength that it, it becomes a weakness and they're, right. they're, they're not even aware of it. So Right, right. And the ability when you have some incredible strengths that in a way make it so you don't have to work on the weakness. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, if I think about even in negotiation coaching, so many times when I'm doing intense coaching with somebody, um, they sometimes, and this could be my limitation, right? But they'll mishear me as saying this thing you've been doing isn't so great. And, and I'm always winding it back and saying, no, the thing you've been doing You've done because it's been so useful and successful for you. But what, what we're really trying to do is develop a capacity to handle situations where that thing doesn't work. Mm. And therefore, you have to have a, a, a wider repertoire. So it's Even adding, if you only use it It's adding one, nu nuance and situation to it so that when they get into another situation – they know how to handle it. Is that sort of what you're, what you're hitting at? Yeah. I mean, th that's right. We, we kind of, given our families of origin, our culture, right, we develop mechanisms to get by and to do well. Um, and typically, I feel like a lot of my work is not saying to somebody, oh, those things don't work. It's just that now you're in a new situation where you need more tools in your toolbox. Um, and even if you're not going to use that, you know, very specialized, you know, may only use that specialized wrench, you know, once every four months, you still want it in your toolbox. What do you because think the, the hammer won't help you with that problem? <laughs> you know? What do you think of the word adaptable? I'm a fan of the word adaptable. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think adaptability, right? Flexibility, um, is essential to be a good negotiator and a good leader um, because you need more than three plays in your playbook mm. um, and you need to be able to riff. Um, you know, there's a lot of work and, and then I'm, I'll get into your story about uh, how to, how I ended up doing this, but there's a, a lot of in negotiation. There's a lot of analogies to jazz. Um, I don't know a huge amount about jazz, but most jazz musicians don't start as jazz musicians, right? 
they learn the scales, they learn classical music, they learn kind of all the discipline in order to be able to riff. You don't just riff if you want to be great, right? Um, and I think there's a similarity in kind of negotiation where you you want to go through the um, basics right, and kind of master them, but not so that you're being then kind of rules and robotic, but so that you actually can riff in the moment, right? Like you do your preparation to be able to riff. All right. So I have to bring this to you, which is my theory. Yeah. Um, so my theory is that your mindset for preparation, your mindset for performance should be completely opposite. Um, so if we are neurotic in our preparation, then maybe we should be a little narcissistic in our performance. If we are humble in our preparation, let's be confident in our performance. Let's fear failure in preparation. Let's be fearless when we're performing. You know, let's be perfectionist in our preparation so we can be adaptable when we're performing. And I'm not saying that those are across the board for everything, but I yeah. am saying too often we say how I prepare is how I perform. And, you know, this is who I am. I'm just rigid and that's who I am. Or I'm a perfectionist or I am neurotic. It's like, okay, well, it's cool that you're neurotic. That might actually be helpful or being a perfectionist might actually be helpful in preparation. But if you're doing that when you're performing, you're not riffing. You're not in the that moment. That is right. You're not, you're not performing. That um, is totally right. And so it's so cool to hear you talk about that in a negotiation because I've thought about it from a music standpoint, just like you have with a musician. I've yeah. thought about it for an actor, right? Like an actor's job, let's just take someone who's going to be, you know, on Broadway, their job is to know their lines, know exactly where they're supposed to be, and then when they get on stage, to trick the audience into thinking that they've never, they've never been there before in their life. That it is yeah. pure instinct, and they have to act as if they're not expecting the line to come. Because if you watch bad acting, it's oh, oh, you went to the mall today. Tell me about the mall. Well, I bought a shoe. It's like right. it, it's it has to be uh, almost impromptu and, and unexpected. That is storytelling. I mean, there's so many things that's performing. So yes. I love that notion in a negotiation, how you, you prepare your ass off and then you are adaptable in the moment and listening and in tune and then figuring out what does this moment call for? Yes. And what's interesting in negotiation is, you know, there's a whole set of people who say, uh, you can't really teach this topic yeah. or you can't really get better at it. You're, you're born with it. You're born with it or you're not. Right. And that's just not true um, because you can teach people to prepare well. You can give them frameworks and that will increase their ability to actually, you know, perform. Um, and you could also, I mean, there is a way of also teaching something about being intuitive and being improvisational. But a lot of the work, I think, uh, is on the kind of front end around preparation. And then there's a lot of kind of coaching and you can do intensive coaching you can do in the performance piece. But, I mean, negotiation is just like any human skill, right? Whether it's playing the piano or playing basketball, um, we may be, we are differently naturally endowed. But if you're intentional about whether it's piano or basketball, right? You learn a lot about the game. You really know the rules of the game, you know, and then a, right. B, um, if when you practice, you're like intense, you're self-reflective, you're thoughtful and C, you get a coach, you will get better, right? You might never be the best, but you will get better. 
Um, but what's really interesting, right? If you think about again any any sport, what you know, think about tennis, right? I mean, Serena Williams. I mean, so that woman, obviously. I mean, I'll speak for myself. She has more talent than I do in tennis. Really? Maybe, you know, right? Right. Just but little... here's what's interesting, right? This is somebody who knows a ton about the game, who's incredibly intense and self-reflective, and she has a coach because she knows if she doesn't do those three things, she won't be as good as she could be. I'll um, tell you another thing about her, which is fascinating. So if we listen to any commencement speech, they'll often say you should don't be afraid to fail, like fail, yeah, fail yeah, again, yeah, fail over, yeah. fail forward. Right. She talked about fear of failure. She said, yeah. I am so afraid to fail. I hate losing more than I like winning. Like, and so I think we do a disservice when we give those messages. And I understand why those messages are being delivered to college kids. But I think we do a disservice to them when we just say, oh, you should fear failure. Or you shouldn't feel failure because to me, you should fear failure when you're preparing like that. It, no, I'm not going to lose. I'm not. It's, this isn't an option for me. Like we're going to get it right. We're going to whether it's finding a win win or whatever you're trying to do in the negotiation. We should fear failure. Like, no, we're going to get it right. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to stop preparing until I do um, a question for you. Yeah. You're with these high achievers at, at Harvard. Um, so you're interacting with people who, you know, they're there for a reason. Do they struggle more with the preparation or with the performance? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would definitely say the latter. Um, and I think, so I think initially with a lot of the people, I, a lot of people I work with, um, there's a skepticism about the importance of preparation, mm. right? Because there's a sense that they have that negotiators uh, it's all about riffing. It's all about being intuitive. It's all about some sense of natural charisma, interpersonal skill, right? Bill Clinton is going to be better at this than Al Gore because he's Bill Clinton, right? Um, so I think there's a skepticism around preparation. I think once the students that I work with, uh, once you've gotten them to try preparation, they're down, um, and that, and they're, and they're, and they'll do it because part of the reason why they've gotten to where they are is that they're good preparers, right? They mm -hmm. just think this is an activity you don't need to prepare in. And school Once, and school academics rewards preparation. I think more than anything, like I think yeah. if to your point about your story, like you busted your ass um, to get the grades that you needed to get to go to, and then I'm sure at Dartmouth, you busted your ass when maybe other kids were out doing whatever they were doing to, so that you could go to a, a law school like Harvard. So I think our academic system actually really rewards preparation and actually in athletics, like you don't get to make it to the pros if you don't prepare, like it's, you have to, it's not yeah. an option, um, yeah. but the performance piece, like sometimes people will make it there because they bust their ass and they've got some talent or some potential. Um, but they don't necessarily know how to set their mind to perform. So it's just a fascinating dynamic that I'm, I would love you go further with it. Yeah, no. And what I was going to say is, that, so I think once like you've uh, persuaded them that preparation here matters just as much as preparation for their civ pro exam or their criminal law exam, then I think the anxiety shifts more toward performance mm. for a whole bunch of reasons. Right. Um, one is someone else is seeing them. Um, we could, you know, and, and they're being evaluated in a way that no one's quite seeing what the preparation is. Judgment. Um, right? Yeah. So there's a judgment piece, right? Um, there is, uh, yeah, it's, it's performative 
Um, so it's live, it's performative, um, and then there's results at the end. Consequences, so, outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, it's really, you know, one of the things we do in my class is we video record people a few times during the semester and then sit down with them. And uh, it's always like the double, you know, kind of bind, right? People say, oh, I hate this. This is horrible. This is horrible. I hate it. And then the p- feedback you get is at the end of the course, oh, more feedback, more, more, <laughs> more video recording. You know, it's like, I hate this, but I also, you know, know I need it. The value of a coach, as you said, that a coach's job is to get you from where you are to where you want to go. Um, yeah. It's really that simple. It's actually the history of the word coach comes from Hungary, um, where the carriage was invented or also known as the coach in a town called Coaches, K-O-C-H-S. Huh. I did not know that. And then, um, so uh, the smart people at Oxford were tutoring kids and they were like, oh, what's our job? Well, our job is like a coach. uh that's that word, that coach to get people from where they want to go. So that's our job. And then we now stole it and use it in so many different capacities. But the history about it is if you think of a carriage or a coach, its job is to get them from where they are to where they want to go. And yeah. back then they didn't have GPS and you know, it was, right, right, it was right. trying to find the ways and navigate it. So um, yeah, I think there's, there's so much good stuff in there. Um, how did you end up doing this? Oh, yeah. So how did I come to this? Uh, So, you know, there I am in law school, um, you know, not really liking it, not liking my first year at all. Um, Just feeling like this is not so much for me. And I ended up taking a negotiation class, going into the class thinking, this is a class that's going to help me tactically get more. Um, So I'm going to learn like the 10 top tips and tricks. Can you and give me some examples of what those are? Because I'm what like, I well, um, I don't know what the top ten tips and tricks are because that's not what I got from the mm. class. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I did get them, but they're but that's what I went in thinking I was going to get. Got it, got it, got it. Right, got it. and that's what I thought I wanted. A manual. This is how you negotiate. Yeah, and everything everything about the class surprised me. Um, so, I mean, things, there's things that, you know, but that I didn't know. So for example, the best negotiators listen way more than they speak. So I guess that's a tip and trick, um, that really good negotiators spend much more of their time looking at the world from the perspective of the person they're negotiating with, um, that really good negotiators, um, look at a pie and they say, this pie is worth 10 points. I can make it worth 80 points, then divide it instead of just dividing a 10 point pie and getting seven of the 10 points. Um, so I was constantly surprised by this class. Um, I was also really challenged to think about what are my own assumptions? Um, why are they maybe not accurate? Um, it was a class that really stretched me. And so I ate it up. It also was really interdisciplinary. And I think one of the things that I was struggling with in law school is how linear and analytic much of law school is. And this was kind of expansive, right? It brought in behavioral economics and it brought in cognitive and social psychology um, and it brought in sociology um, and game theory. So, that was kind of so so being in this class made me like remember oh i really like to learn right that was a, a good thing to be reminded of but then i had the chance um 
I was just very fortuitous. I had the chance of, I was asked to be a teaching assistant for the course the next semester. Um, and, you know, I thought, oh, I'll learn a lot how to, about how to teach in this class. And I did. Um, but I also really learned a huge amount more about negotiation mm. and about human behavior. Um, and so that's when I started to think, you know, I'd really like to do this, uh, if I could, professionally in some way. And I was very fortunate. Um, at the time, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation was funding young people who wanted to do this kind of work. So Can I applied you back for up, back up yeah. one, one step. Yeah, please. When you became a teaching assistant, was that yeah. the first time that you thought about like, hey, maybe I actually would love to teach? Or was that something that you had thought about before then? Great question. Um, not the first time I thought that. I would say I had no thought, even at, even when I was a teaching assistant, that I could be a law school teacher. But when I was in, when I was in college and applying to law school, um, I thought what I really might want to do is be a high school teacher for a few years <laughs> and then go to law school. But I didn't do that. So I think the idea of teaching was always something that was attractive to me. But at this moment, being a teaching assistant in a law class, I wasn't thinking like, oh, now I'll be a law professor. Yeah. Um, but I ended up getting this fellowship. And so I ended up doing some writing in the area, ended up teaching, uh, being a teaching assistant a few more times. And ultimately, um, in my third year, was working with um, someone who's, you know, been a mentor. Uh, he's now an emeritus professor, um, who was at the time the associate dean of the law school. And he basically said to me, did you ever think about teaching? And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm not doing the Supreme Court clerkship that everybody else here is doing. Not everybody else at the law school, but everybody else on the faculty. Uh, like, I didn't do the set of things that set you up um, to be a professor. The resume. You yeah. You're in the resume for that. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, you know yes, you're right. Um, and teaching negotiation is different. It's a different skill set. I think you'd be terrific. Wow. Um, and that's kind of what ultimately led to this one year chance to teach. Um, and yeah, it's been incredibly, incredibly rewarding um, at, at so many levels. Um, but I think for some of the ones that I, you know, said to you in terms of my experience as a student, right, um, it, there's a real transformative aspect to the material. So it's not just I learned a bunch of tips and tricks. But in fact, um, I really had a question a lot in myself. Um, the course, the way it's designed, um, encourages a lot of self-reflection, a lot of journaling, um, where we um, actually really push them um, um, through, through actually coaching. I mean, weekly coaching on their journals um, to think about why did they do, why did they have that, why do you have the reaction that you do um, to this move? Building self-awareness, building self-reflection. Yeah. And then where does that come from, right? So, you know, you're doing a simulation. So one of the things I always say to my students the first, first week of class is I don't use the word safe space. Um, I say, we're, and I'm very intentional. I say we're going to try to create a low-risk space. Hmm. Um, and the reason why I'm not saying safe is because there's, in this room, 24 people who have a real sets of feelings and emotions. And... You're going to be in negotiations, and I actually can't be with all of you all the time. So I can't offer you safety because you're going to be interacting with each other. And here's something I'm just going to guarantee to you right now. 
there will be tears in this classroom at least once. Because someone's going to have, yeah, where do they come from? someone's going to, someone's feelings are going to get hurt. Someone's going to feel offended, right? Because we, um, because we get into each other's stories inevitably, even though it's a simulation, right? People usually kind of, they look at me, they're like, uh huh, you know, or, you know, whatever, like, I'm sure crazy professor. Um, but I know it's going to happen, not because I want it or it doesn't matter what I want, right? What, what happens is, um, I'm interacting with you, but I'm not just interacting with you. I'm interacting with you and your lifetime history of interactions with other people on the stories you're telling about yourself in this moment. Um, and so what I want you to do as a really good negotiator is don't just tell me Bob did this and Brian did this and then I did this and then we did this, right? I want you to pick a moment and say, okay, like in this moment, what was going on in your mind? What were you thinking? And not saying. What were you feeling and not saying? What are three other things you could have said? What impact would that have had on me? Why didn't you say them? And then when you get better at journaling, I want you to be able to say, you know, in this moment when this happened, what it reminds me of is a pattern. A pattern that comes up every time somebody, whatever, challenges my math skills. Or... Every time someone um, pushes me a little bit harder and I say, sure, and I always say, sure, and I always say, sure, because I'm so afraid of letting people down. Um, and I could see how that's blocking my ability to be a really good negotiator because I'm so afraid of disappointing somebody. Um, because usually the challenges that people have in negotiation are not about their inherent capacity to perform some behavioral skill. Um, it's giving themselves the permission in their roles themselves to do that thing. If that makes any sense. hundred percent. Fascinating. I think, I think it's really cool. Are you trying to get them to be in the moment when they're negotiating? Are you trying to get them to think three steps ahead? Um, are you trying to get them to think about the past? Um, do you guys coach them on that? How do you how do you coach them on that? Yeah, I mean, so yes, to all of that, right? So I want them um, as much as possible. Um, so there's this tool we call the three positions, right? Position number one is what's going on for you right now. So what are you feeling, thinking? Um, just to be keenly aware of that, right? Because people often, I mean, some people can lose sight of that entirely. I would call Other, that I would call that role yeah. the therapist, right? Like it's a therapist. Like what is going? Tell me what's going on for you right now. What yes. are you feeling? Right? It's almost a therapy. It's, it's yeah, very therapy-ish. It's very therapy therapy-ish, and some people lose sight of that entirely. Some people might be good at identifying what what I might call a cover emotion. So it's, not, it's a real emotion, but it's a loud one. Like I'm angry, right? But if I say, okay, so you're angry, and what else? Uh, frustrated. Okay, but what else? Right? You're usually like angry, frustrated, sad, afraid, worried, betrayed, whatever it is, right? So how do we become fully aware of that in the moment? Um, secondly, second position, what's going on for them? Like what's motivating them? What is going on for their story? Uh, like maybe they're doing this because it's worked on you in the past. All right, I'm going to label that. I'm having fun. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, go. Yeah. The journalist. Um, 
So it's just, you like to blend all these. Let's just put labels on them. And, you know, I'm not always a fan of labels, but for this yeah. exercise. So first one is therapist. What's going on for them? Trying to maybe put myself in their shoes, understand the deeper meaning of what I'm seeing. The second one is is sort of the journalist of probing or uh, I don't know how you would. Yeah, you tell me more about this. Yeah, I think it's just trying to put yourself in their shoes, like a perspective taking, right? Mm-hmm. So um, instead of immediately labeling them like they're an ass, be able to say like, okay, I'm experiencing this person as whatever, being an ass. I wonder why they're doing that. Like what's motivating that? Like maybe it's fear on their side. Maybe it's, this has been a successful strategy for them. Maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's, they don't know what else to do. But this Um, goes back to your original thing, which is, so I'm amazed that the first two steps are focused on them. Uh, not on. Well, me. first one is you. First one is first, first one is step is how I, am I feel. Feeling. Right. How am okay. I feeling? Okay. Checking Second one is how are they? Yeah, myself. Okay. Sorry. Got it. Yeah. Got first it. one is how am I feeling? Okay. Second one is how are they feeling? Okay. Third one is what we call the third position, which is um, if I were observing this dynamic from the a balcony or like a fly on the wall, um how would I describe it more neutrally, right? So I'm watching the interaction between myself and this other person, but I'm watching it from a distance. Um, how would I describe it more neutrally? Does that make sense? Yeah, observing. Um, it, do you guys teach mindfulness? Because that, that sounds kind of mindfulnessy, right? Like I'm going to yeah. observe it. I'm not going to necessarily judge it, but I'm just going to observe it, notice it, uh, accept it for what, what, I'm, what I say. Absolutely. Right. And we, and mindfulness is a, uh, you know, a big piece of our field. Actually, we've had a whole symposium on mindfulness and negotiation. Uh, you have the godmother yeah. of mindfulness, like probably a couple, you know, offices down or whatever, buildings down and Ellen Longer. And for those that don't know yeah. about her, great yeah. work on mindfulness. There's a book called Counterclockwise. I'll give it a shout out and a plug. Great book. Um, and she just done amazing work on mindfulness. So anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so the goal, right, in some sense is how do we navigate all three of these positions at the same time in a negotiation, mm. right? We're negotiating and I want to try as best I can. I want to be aware of myself, keenly aware of myself, try to be aware of what's going on with you, and then to be able to move to this third position of if I were looking at this kind of more objectively, how would I describe it? And what often happens is people get stuck in either the first or the second position, right? So they're, you know, so angry or so upset, but they don't care about you. They don't care about the other person. They don't care about what it looks like. Um, the second, you know, depending again from your family and origin, right? There's some people who get stuck in the second position. Oh my gosh, I've upset them. I don't mean to upset them. I better make them unupset. So they make a whole bunch of concessions um, to make that other person happy. And then they're with themselves, you know, three hours later and they're just like, wait a minute, I just agreed to work the next 48 of, you know, 48 of 52 weekends. Like what happened? Um, and so this ability to be able to navigate myself, the other, and then take a step back, right? I like your term of mindfulness is really like, how would I be mindful about this? Um, and a kind of observant and, Detach, not in a clinical way, but in a um, almost like a mediator kind of way, if that makes sense. Yeah, and they're doing all of that while still trying to really pay attention. Yes, to really. That's listen. hard. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the task of negotiation, right? Most of the cognitive things in negotiation are not that hard to understand, but actually doing it really hard. Um, like takes a lot of discipline, right? You have to work at managing those three positions. Um, and that's where things like journaling comes in, right? Um, for me to be able to go back and kind of write out what was going on for me at that moment. Why wasn't I aware of it? Why did I fall into that default if I have a default way of acting? Um, how will next time I try to not do whatever the default is? Not because the default doesn't serve me sometimes, but it, I need a more expanded skill set than that because it didn't serve me this time in this negotiation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love yeah. it. And I love how there's nuance to it. I love how there's, you know, it's not, you're this way all the time. And, and you need to blend these. Like if you just have one of them, that's not going to be good enough. Um, and for me, like I always then go to, all right, how do we train those skills? Right. So like meditation yeah. is a great tool for that third step, which is practicing the ability to see thoughts and especially like mindfulness meditation, which is, all right, notice thoughts, observe them, yeah. but don't judge them. Don't label yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and just like the example I always heard was if you're on top of the Eiffel tower and, um, you know, you see cars going up the block and then they go away. Um, and so when you realize that feelings and thoughts have a shelf life and they don't stay with us, yeah. you can observe them when you're in that third step. Cause I understand why it's important to know what they're feeling, what they're thinking, have that emotional intelligence in the, in the first two about myself and about the other, but in that third step, really having that idea of, all right, what's going on. I'm observing. All right. I feel that way. Okay. Yeah. And not attaching judgment to it. Yeah. Um, man, acceptance it's, in that space is, is, it's tough. It's, it's really tough and it's really critical, but it is definitely the mark of some of the most skillful negotiators. Um, I mean, sometimes they'll name that, you know, but if they don't name it, if you really get into conversations with them, you can kind of see it. You, you hit uh, yeah. on this earlier. You sort of talked about negotiation and leadership. Yeah. Do you see a correlation there or parallels between great negotiators and great leaders? I mean, you know, this, this could be the negotiation imperialist in me, <laughs> but yes, I think they're like absolutely connected and, um, it's hard for me to imagine a great leader who isn't a great negotiator. Um, where great is defined, I mean, I think you have to have a, de a great leader is defined as somebody who um, can motivate a set of people to work toward some set of shared goals um, in a kind of collective way that manages their kind of health and well-being um, and builds kind of community and connection, right? Um, I think they're inextricably linked because my definition of negotiation really is just any, any communication where we're trying to influence or persuade another person. So, you know, one of the things that I, I get a kick out of sometimes on the first day of a class, I'll say, like, how many of you negotiated before? You know, and maybe 30% of the class raises their hand, you know, and I'm thinking like, okay, fair enough. And like, no, like you've all negotiated before. Um, because to me, negotiation is pervasive, right? If, if you and Robin are thinking about going out to dinner tonight, 
Um, you have to find a babysitter, by the way. So it's okay. So you're not going anywhere. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> she's texting me as we're talking right now. Like, hey, uh, we need to find a high school girl or boy to come over and <laughs> uh, watch our house as our kids are asleep. So anyway, but yeah, go on. Tell, tell right, me about but you know, if you if you want to go whatever to get Chinese food and she wants Italian, right? That's a negotiation. Yeah, for sure. Because you're trying to influence someone's choice. Um, and so we're always doing that and great leaders are always doing that. Um, and so, yeah, the question is like, how do we do that really effectively? Um, and that past people kind of respect, you know, and we're, again, for me, effective also means not just, well, we got them to do the thing. Oh, great. Robin agreed to have Chinese. I won. Right. Okay, great. But like, if actually she resents you for it, um, and you know, is going to take it out later on, right? That's you. You know, you, oh look, you got what you want in that moment, but you didn't in the long run, right? I mean, that's obviously obvious in a marriage, but lots of things that look like one-off transactions really aren't one-off transactions. Oh yeah, and they build and they compound and. Uh, she doesn't want Chinese and I almost always do. And so it's yeah. a, it's a perfect analogy. And, um, I can't remember the last time we had Chinese because I know like, it's like, Oh, we're going to do that. And so actually it's a pretty good analogy, but I agree because it's all about communication. And, um, when I work with sports teams, the best head coaches are the ones who over communicate, who over listen, um, who are very crystal clear with what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish. And I think a lot of coaches struggle when they under communicate and, they don't listen and, and then the relationships aren't there. So a relate, if, a rela- if we know that relationships matter to coaching or leading and what is the key to relationships, communication, um, it, it doesn't matter if you're in a marriage or you are, have a friendship or you're a father, son, or you are a coach with a athlete or a professor and a, a student. So like that is so logical to me. And as you said, you're all negotiators. I say the same thing with we're all performers. So yes. We're constantly performing. We're constantly negotiating. And so we need to prepare to perform. And we need to know what is our goal? What are we trying to accomplish out of a negotiation? Like, What are we hoping to get out of this? And I think you hit on the head, which is with the filming of them, is like they also need to practice performing. And yeah. so a lot of people are good at preparing. But they like the golfer who is on the driving range hitting shot after shot after shot, and they're really good at that. But then all of a sudden they've got a slope that they've got to hit off of or hit out of a divot or it's raining or it's windy or there's all these other factors. Oh, crap. Now I don't know what to do. So when we put ourselves in those situations and practice performing, now all of a sudden we're more adaptable in that moment. So one of my big things is to practice performing and to put yourself and simulate that as often as possible. Cause we often spend way more time practicing, practicing, and we need to spend more time practicing performing, at least in my, in my world. That's what I yeah. say. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And I think about, uh, you know, I actually think about listening to you, maybe think about the advice I give to people who are like new teachers, right? So someone who is going to be giving their first lecture. And I always say, go into the classroom and just give the lecture over and over and over and then have a few people come in and listen to you and get their feedback and coaching. And that's really time intensive, but it is such a good use of time. I mean, I can tell when someone has taken that advice or not, Mm. you know, 
And it's one thing to sit there and think about what you're going to say. But thinking about what you're going to say and getting up and doing it is really different. Um, and learning about, you know, your timing um, and the phraseology, the choices that you make. I mean, I can tell now like, if I'm giving a lecture, you know, I'll be done. Someone's like, oh, that was great. I'm like, yeah, no, it wasn't. And I can tell you why. I can tell you that this story, I missed the timing here, right? Or I wasn't feeling the crowd like the right way. Because, I mean, you, I'm sure you know this too from presenting. You feel their energy or you, you know. don't. And you have to adjust to their energy. Um, and you, or, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, Standing so, up, sitting down, tone, body language. Um, are they sleepy? Can we get them on their feet? You know, those are things you have to take the temperature of the room. You have to set the thermostat to what you want it to be. And if you're just going to be a thermometer based on what you're getting from them, you're in for a long day. So like yeah. I always talk about setting the mind to perform. Um, so we talk about mindset. I think it's yeah. about set mind. Let's set our mind regardless of environment so that I don't let the outside world dictate my inside. Um, yeah. And I, it's really hard to do. But if you can get good at it, that's what it's all about is from a yeah. mental standpoint. I want to have some fun with you. So yeah, okay. we're going to finish on what I call our preferences. So okay. uh, you're just going to answer <laughs> which of these you prefer. Okay. Um, oh, my gosh. So stressful. Do you prefer <laughs> preparation or performance? Performance. Do you prefer – Yes, sir, students or why students? Wait, sorry. Oh, oh, definitely why students. Do you prefer a system or autonomy? Whew, I like them both. Uh, at this stage in my life, autonomy. Cheat and win or lose while being honest? Oh, definitely the latter. Choose while being honest. That's an easy one. That's like a, that's like a test easy question. Yeah. It's amazing. Athletes. I just had another person who wasn't an athlete answer it as lose while being honest. Um, I'm sorry, as cheat and win. Um, but a lot of people in the business world say exactly that. Like, who who answers cheat and win? But there there definitely are people that will go toward cheat and win because they think about it like, well, what's cheating? Is cheating like grabbing a guy's jersey? Is cheating like getting someone to tell me something like right. what is considered cheating. So that's how they think about it. So anyway, just a different. Yeah. 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 No. And in negotiation, right. Cheating and winning is probably in the long term losing, even if it's not losing against that person, uh, you are building a reputation and your reputation is going to make a big, it's going to affect your ability to get the kinds of deals you get down the road. Um, and we know this from research, but you, you don't need research. Uh, you know, any person worth his salt, right? Uh, if he's a lawyer and a negotiator, and I know I'm going to be negotiating with, you know, John Smith, I'm going to make a bunch of phone calls about what John Smith is like before I meet John Smith. And if John Smith's reputation is that he's, a, you know, a cheater, I'm going to have a really different stance going into that negotiation. That's, going to not hurt me. It's going to hurt him because there's a whole range of possible deals that I'm never going to discuss with him because I'm afraid that if I disclose information, he's going to use it against me. You know, you just brought something up that I heard at a conference where they asked a panel of executives, would they rather negotiate against someone who's smarter than them or someone who's dumber than them? What did they say? I'm so curious. Well, I want to get your answer. And then well, I'll the answer is definitely smarter. I mean, I, for me, that's a no-brainer. 
that so, smarter people are easier to go. The more prepared my negotiation counterpart is, and the smarter they are, I think the more likely we're going to find creative outcomes that are going to be better for me. So I mean, there were four people on stage that ranged in their job titles, but they were all super successful people. However, yeah. how we define success, right? Um, three of them said exactly what you said. If they're smarter, I know we'll have a good negotiation. If they're dumb, then, you know, we might go down this path that is just not worthwhile for anybody. Um, one of them who is super, you know, I'm not going to mention his name, mm-hmm. um, but he's an MIT grad yeah. and he's in the sports world. There aren't that many of them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, is seen as like super intelligent. Yeah. Um, he, he said the opposite. And what was his reasoning? Um, you know, that's a good question. I forget exactly what his reasoning was. That's a really good follow-up question. I'm trying to think. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I just remember being shocked because I think he was the first one to go. And then oh, the interesting. Rest, the rest of them answered it exactly like you did. Um, yeah. And that just stuck with me. And it was a good primer into how he sees himself, yeah. which is he's a guy in sports who is an MIT guy. And I think he thinks his unfair advantage that he's smarter than everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, yeah. it was fascinating. It hear. is. Yeah. Really I think one of the things that I, you know, it's really interesting because this is a little bit different than smarter, dumber, but it's, uh, it's a question and it's that, you know, students often go in with one assumption and then change their view and it's around preparation, right? Would you rather negotiate with someone who is really very well prepared or someone who is, you know, not prepared, taken off guard. And I think most students kind of going into the course would choose the latter. Like, I'm super prepared and they're not super prepared. Therefore, I'll get, you know, the better deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and almost inevitably at some point, they will end up negotiating with someone who, for whatever reason, is not that prepared that day. Um, and they come up with a totally different view. Like, that was hard. They didn't get, like, they didn't get all the value that was on the table. They couldn't answer basic questions. I had to do a lot of work with for them and with them. And and maybe I did better like distributionally, but we just missed opportunities. Like we missed a whole bunch of stuff we could have done. So when you're in a negotiation, are you competing with the person or against the person? I don't think I would say I'm not competing. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it's Option either with C. or against. <laughs> yeah. Option C. None of the above is my choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I want to see, for me, a successful negotiation is whatever your set of interests are, um, are met. So it's a, mediation, is it a mediation, a facilitation? No, I mean, it's a negotiation, right? Because yeah. my, my interests also need to be met yeah. too, right? So mediator, I mean, when I think of mediator, a mediator is a third party helping us figure it out. Sure. In negotiation, right, I'm advocating for my own interests. But it's not a good outcome for me if I get all my interests met and you don't. Because that deal may not be sustainable, A. B, um, when we have, you know, next week, when we're disagreeing about the provision on page six and paragraph four, if you're feeling badly about me, bitter about me, taken, like, that's not going to be fun for either of us. The likelihood we're going to do another deal is low. Um, you're going to spend, if we have a three-year contract, you're going to spend two of those three years looking for other partners. 
um, it's not a good outcome for me, right? So my feeling is not that I should give you something just to be nice. Really good negotiators are, let's really get at your deep interests and mine as well. Because I bet that this thing that looks like um, you want more and I want less, if we really dig in, it's probably not that about that at all. We probably can both have, at a more nuanced way, what we want. For me, it speaks to, I am going to be selfless because I'm selfish. Yeah. I mean, it's enlightened self-interest. Love it. All right, yeah, I'm going to go back to our preferences, but that was a cool Oh, yeah. Statement. Great. I okay, yeah. down that road. Um, your generation or your parents' generation? Mine. Evaluations or descriptions? Descriptions. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Oh, gosh, that's my choice, huh? Uh, <laughs> I'll go with negative. Culture or talent? Culture. Momentum or the moment? Oh, the moment. Pumped up or calm down? Pumped up. Light or respected? Woo! Uh, <laughs> I don't know I'm both, but I have to choose. I would say light. Love winning or hate losing? Um, hate losing. Risk taker or rule follower? Probably a rule follower still. Wow. <laughs> I mean, no, wait, 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 is it what I, wait, is it what I prefer or what I'm more like, is that, wait, is it what I prefer or what I might be more apt to actually do? All right, wait, how do you see yourself? Let's answer it that way. How I'm probably more honestly, I mean, even though I cite earlier on risk taking, I mean, part of the reason why I'm citing that is I'm so mindful of what I'm doing. It's not my natural. So you're my more natural, like mom and dad than, than you let on. I am more game. like that. Yeah. And I have to. I have to be really mindful, like really gather myself to take risks. And I think one of the things that I've observed is that always, even when it doesn't go that well, I'm glad I did it. Mm. Um, yep. It's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to risk takers. Yeah, these lack complete nuance, right? So ideally, I'm a rule follower that's okay with taking risk because yeah. I follow the rules, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But I'm not giving you that option, so too bad. I know you're not. Um, yeah, yeah. Would you, and I think this will resonate with you, a starter on a losing team or a towel waver on a winning team? Oh, I mean, I want to be a starter on a losing team. Balance or specific obsession? Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, I'm probably more of a specific obsession, even though I aspire to balance. <laughs> fear of failure or fearlessness? Uh, gosh, I mean, I prefer fearlessness. Disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace. Head or gut? Gut. Awesome. All right, you are off the hot seat. Okay. Uh, Bob, <laughs> Bob, we've been talking for a while. I appreciate you uh, giving me your time. Uh, it's been fun getting to know you. Um, do you have anything that you want to promote? Uh, social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever that is. Yeah. Website and where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you're doing and what you're up to? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Well, if you want to uh, learn more about negotiation and hear my thoughts, usually on negotiation, but sometimes on politics, you can follow me at Twitter at, at Bob Wardone. It's pretty easy. Um, I think beyond that, probably that's it. Um, I have a website that I haven't updated in a long time, so <laughs> but you could also find that if you want to. It's just BobWardone.com. We'll put your Twitter handle in the show yeah. notes. Uh, thank yeah. you so much for sharing. This was fascinating. I think we both said before we started, like, oh, we're not sure where this is really going to go. And I have that 
comment happen a lot with the people I, I talk with. And uh, man, we like when you started getting into the weeds with the negotiation stuff, like it was like my head was exploding because I was like, man, this is so similar to what I see uh, in my world on a daily basis. And uh, I think I told you this before, like one of the things I'll do with my clients is we'll do a negotiation exercise. So um, I I knew it would go well, but I thought, I mean, it it was a lot of fun and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Brian, it was super fun for me too. And I, and not surprisingly, I learned a lot and the synergy, like I think there's a huge synergy between like your work and getting people to just optimize their performance in in life and being a, ne- a good negotiator. Um, so this was a huge amount of fun for me. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to hearing this and, and some of the others you recorded this week too, which sound pretty amazing. Cool. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Adaptability, right? Flexibility um, is essential to be a good negotiator and a good leader. Um, because you need more than three plays in your playbook um, and you need to be able to riff um, but there's a, a lot of in negotiation there's a lot of analogies to jazz um, I don't know a huge amount about jazz but most jazz musicians don't start as jazz musicians right they learn the scales they learn classical music they learn kind of all the discipline in order to be able to riff you don't just riff if you want to be great, right? Um, and I think there's a similarity in kind of negotiation where you you want to go through the um, basics right, and kind of master them, but not so that you're being then kind of rules-ish and robotic, but so that you actually can riff in the moment, right? Like you do your preparation to be able to riff.